What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, I want to quickly tell you about my new coaching program, Elite Property Foundations. It's officially launched as of the 1st of June, and it is now alive and kicking with members. If you are a novice property investor or you would like to be a property investor, this is the program for you. I guarantee it's going to take you from feeling nervous about what you're doing to being both highly knowledgeable and confident in your decisions. There's a load of features and benefits, so you should definitely check it out. I'm gonna leave a link in the show notes below. That's all, I hope to see you inside. Now let's get on with the show. What's up guys, welcome back to another episode. And uh, it's a Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting in the office with my little furry friend, Oscar, sitting here beside me. And I wanted to, I mean, those of you who have been listening to my, movements or listening to the podcast and understood I have just come back from London. I was there on Friday and I was speaking at an event and the event was called the Build Your Future event. And in fact, I have a book here from the event and uh, it's written by Greg Wilkes, who was the event organizer. And I want to thank Greg again for inviting me to speak at the conference. And it was a great conference, actually, I have to say. Also speaking at it, was Daniel Priestley. And Daniel, those of you who've been listening for a long time will know that Daniel spoke on this podcast about 100 episodes ago, way back in episode number 53. And those of you who don't know who Daniel is, he's written a book called The Key Person of Influence. In fact, I have it here in my shelf. He's written a couple of books. He's a great, he's a great guy. I like Daniel a lot. And so uh, Daniel gave a great talk. And, um, and I spoke before him. So it was interesting to be there and really enjoyed the event, got to meet a load of the attendees afterwards. We went up to the bar in the hotel and I was chatting to a couple of guys, Charlie and Danny and uh, there was Ryan and there was a couple of guys that were there, Hamid. And um, anyway, they all were very, very friendly, bought me a couple of drinks, bought me somebody, bought uh, Ryan bought me dinner. And uh, just really nice to meet them. And so if you guys uh, happen to be listening now, because I know some of you said you'd start listening to the podcast, then hello again. And it's nice to uh, nice to see you in here. I thought what I would do today is I'm going to do something a little bit different. And it's subject to the some news headlines that I've covered that I have some thoughts about. But I'm also going to give you a small extract from my talk from London, but it's going to be highly relevant to the newspaper headline that I'm going to be talking about. And uh, I haven't done this before, but I think you'll understand why. And if you're a loyal friend of anyone, then I think you would feel the need to do something like this. And um, so I'm going to go straight into it. My, I'm, I've been reading the headline on Friday evening that the uh, former vice chairman, chairperson or chairman of um, on board Planola, Paul Hyde, has been sentenced to two months in prison. 
uh, as a result of, I, you're probably familiar if you're watching the news, but he has been, he was, he pleaded guilty to not making a full declaration of his property interests. Now, the reason that I'm going to give you my views is that Paul is a friend of mine. Paul has been a, a very, very good friend of mine for over 30 years. Uh, myself and Paul, we go way back to first year in university when we were studying architecture together. So first thing I have to say is my thoughts go out to Paul and also to his family. And I know Paul, very similar to me, has three teenage daughters. And I have three teenage daughters. I have younger kids as well, but my the three teenage daughters must be really, really upset to hear the news that their dad is going to have to do two months in prison. And they've already gone through a lot over the last 18 months, but to for it all to kind of come to a head and for him to believe that he was going to get, I think he was probably going to get something a little bit less severe than two months of imprisonment. And um, so I feel really, really bad for the guy. And I just know, I have to say, I believe that he's being kind of singled out here um, to set some sort of an example of people in high places having to follow the rules like everyone else. And I can understand, you know, that may be the, um, you know, it may be an understandable kind of thought for the judge to want to do that. But this is a person I know, and I really think he's getting a raw deal in a big way. Um, like this is a guy with a family. And if you actually look into the details of what he's accused of and what he's pleaded guilty to, He's pleaded guilty to omitting two properties from his declaration of interests. And you're meant to make a declaration, a full declaration of all of your interests. And the fact that he didn't do that, he made a mistake and he left two off. You could have kind of, I understand, you could kind of say, you know what, he's in, you know, he has to go and make a full declaration and therefore he has to take the blame for this. But the reality is when you actually understand what's going on behind the scenes, and this is not entirely secret, like this is actually part of his case if you look into it, if you read the details, is there was a tiny strip of land that he owns through a company, I think it is, and it owns like a small patch of grass. That's it. There's no benefit to this piece of land. This is like a piece of land that's left over from a development that was done and it's still in the ownership of a company that he was involved in something like that and in fact he's not even involved any longer i understand that the property or that that strip of land has since been sold but it's the kind of thing that would be quite easy to overlook i know that there's various bits of land that i have bought over the years and these little kind of pieces that get left over they can become these little kind of anomalies on maps and you don't realize that it's actually still in your name because it hasn't been transferred to another owner. And I know that when I did my development in, um, in Carrick Mines many, many years ago, we, we started out with a map of, and we split it up into four different sites. And when we split it up into four different sites, we assumed the sites would be of a certain size and type. But then when the builders went and built the walls, they were slightly out by a couple of millimeters here and a, a foot or two there. 
And what happened is when we actually went to sell the properties, we had to completely rejig the map because the lines that we thought were going in one direction were actually slightly out. So by the time it got to the far end of the wall, you had this big triangle that was never intended, but that was left over. So it took, I remember it took ages to fix all that stuff. And so I can understand how things like this can happen. And so I don't think that was, I mean, there was no financial gain to be gotten from it. So this is not like, oh, I'm going to leave that piece out because that is like, you know, I have to keep that secret. I think this was just an omission. But, you know, let them make their own defense. The second uh, thing that he's pleaded guilty to is that there is a property that he bought back in the heyday of 2005 or whenever it was. And he overpaid, like so many of us, overpaid for the property. I did this myself. I overpaid on multiple properties. And what happens? The bank comes in and demands repayment of the loan. You're not able to do it. So what do they do? They appoint a receiver. This is exactly what the bank did to my friend Paul. They appointed a receiver and the receiver took the property from Paul. And so he innocently believed that it's no longer in his control. Therefore, it's doesn't need to go into the declaration and so he left it out but of course technically the receiver only takes it off uh, takes control of it away from you but it doesn't actually transfer ownership until the receiver sells it to another party so even though uh, it was technically not in his control it was technically still in his name as the owner pending the sale to somebody else so you can see uh, you know, whatever your political view, whatever, you know, maybe you've taken a view that he's guilty and that's that's your prerogative. But I'm just telling you as a friend of mine that it seems in those circumstances that the sentence has been overly harsh. And I mean, if he stood to gain financially from these omissions and it was some sort of, you know, keeping it hidden because there was some sort of financial gain in it for him at some date in the future then perhaps I could understand that he would be punished for that. But you can see that this was actually quite innocent. And it's you can always tell when something is an innocent omission, when there is no financial gain to be made. Like the bank were taking this from him, had already taken it from him. So why should he be punished for not having it on the register? I just, I just don't understand how people cannot see that that is, seem, seems to me like a very innocent omission or error. The worst thing about all of this is that Paul was the vice chairman of Onboard Planola. And Onboard Planola, to those of you who don't know, if you go for planning permission and the local authority rejects your planning permissions, declines to give you planning, you have an alternative option of appealing that. And that appeal goes to Onboard Planola. And they will take the case in, they will read through all of the documents and they will make an adjudication whether or not they believe that the local authority was in the right. A lot of the time they will say, yes, the local authority was right, but they often will come in and say, actually, no, we don't believe the authority was right. And they will overturn a decision against a development or or whatever. So Paul was in there, he'd been there for many years before he was elected to the chairman or to the vice chairman position. And I know because I, you know, because he's a good friend, I remember when he went and he studied planning 
And the reason he went and he studied this was because he was an architect like me, but I was in development. He got really badly uh, caught up in the 2008 crash. His business was no longer, I mean, back in 2008, if you owned an architectural firm, you were going to find it very, very difficult to survive with most of your clients going bankrupt, developers stopping projects, banks no longer funding projects. So all of the work dried up. And so what was he going to do? He was going to go and study, go back to college, study planning, figure out how to go in and join the planners and actually do some town planning instead. He did that and I can remember he got the job and he was really pleased with himself because he was good at that. He was very interested in planning and he went in and he, I can remember he was very enthusiastic about the planning process and about town planning and good town planning. He was also very conscious of the housing crisis that we're in and very much believed that we had to go and increase densities, get more projects out there, speed up the process of development so that housing schemes were not held up for months and months, that we could get projects done quicker and faster. So definitely he was the right guy for the time that we're in when we need more housing delivered. Of course, some people will take the view that, oh, he was probably in there on the take and the developers were paying him off. I can tell you, knowing him, he was not. But, you know, people will make their own decisions. Anyway, in the circumstances, seems like a very, very, very harsh decision that was made to put him, to give him two months in prison. Uh, and that's obviously devastating for him, for his family. But uh, the other side of it is that the, you know, society in general actually loses a good planner who was actually trying to solve the problem of housing. So, look, obviously I'm biased. He's a good friend of mine and I, I you know, I was curious whether or not I should, I debated with myself whether I should actually talk about this topic given my personal uh, friendship with him. But I, he's been through hell over the last 18 months. He was in a job that he really enjoyed and to get like turfed out of it and his whole life turned upside down is pretty hard going. And so unrelated to his situation, but actually coincidentally, one of the topics that I talked about in London was the topic of resilience. And resilience is how to stay mentally strong in, during times of struggle and challenge. And the reason that I brought it up was because I'd gone through my own, I've been through my own struggles with the banks and all that back in 2008. And I actually sent Paul a text the other day in just to support him. And I sent him a quotation. And I'll read the quotation now because it is what I opened my talk in London when I started talking about resilience. This is how I opened my talk in London. It's a quotation from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it goes, What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And uh, I just introduced that. I love that quotation because it's all about the strength of your character and that no matter what you're facing, you can survive, you can push yourself through this. And so I talked about this on Friday, completely coincidentally, because I actually didn't know that Paul had been sentenced at all. But I brought up these points as what I learned when I went through my very difficult time back in 2008 till about 2000. 13. So about five years, I was 
struggling with severe problems with banks and things like that. So the first thing you need to, oh, I'm going to go through the five things that I believe you need to sort of deal with when you are facing struggle. The first is perspective, putting things into perspective. The second is acceptance and ownership. The third thing is to take stock of your resources. The fourth thing is to focus on what you can control. And the fifth thing is to consider this all a big test. And I'm going to just take you through the first thing. Um, if you're watching this on the video, I have some slides that I had. But the first thing I show is a slide from Coventry in the UK. And it's the date of this photograph is November 1941. And it is Coventry and it's just a scene of absolute devastation. Uh, Coventry was bombed in... 1941 by the German Luftwaffe, I think, and they they flew 515 bombers over from Germany and they just unloaded all of these bombs down on Coventry and it was obliterated. And so it's an incredible photograph. It's very, very moving to see just, you know, a couple of facades standing up of what's left of that uh, town. And why I brought that up is because you have to try to put things into perspective. So you're going through a difficult moment at this time, but try to put things into perspective. What is difficult about your moment? Are you, uh, you know, if it's a financial issue, as it was in my case, or in, you know, it depends, like whatever your situation is, no matter what you're facing, you have to consider, is this a, a systemic issue that is going to kind of bring an end to everything and a lot of people when they're faced with very severe financial difficulties they they get kind of they lose perspective and they think that this is everything this is that you know their entire world is now coming to an end um when in fact it's not it is just it's a financial blip and you will overcome it and uh, in the same way Various people will deal with things like divorce and, you know, it, it's a very, very harrowing moment to go through, but it does pass and, you know, things get better on the other side. I can speak from experience. Now, putting it into perspective, does this impact your health or even worse, as I would put it into perspective, is um, does it impact the health of any of my children or my loved ones? Has anyone died here is the first question that you ask. Is this really that bad? Are you losing perspective or, or are you losing touch with the seriousness of this event? Yes, it's bad. Yes, it's a terrible situation. Yes, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and do something about it. But has anyone actually died? No, it's not a it's not that serious in the scheme of, you know, that kind of a, a problem now. The next thing I'm going to talk about is the acceptance and ownership. And going through my slides, the first slide that I brought up was the talk in the UK of the mortgage time bomb. And they're talking about this, they're, they're calling this ticking time bomb. They call it a mortgage time bomb. And I believe Ireland is facing something similar. And what it is, is that interest rates have risen very steeply over the last 12 months or so. And because they have risen so steeply so quickly, a lot of people are on fixed rate mortgages that are about to reset. 
And so if your previous mortgage was, you know, at one or 2%, it's suddenly going to reset to 5%. And so that is a very significant increase. It's like perhaps doubling the amount of interest that you have to pay every month. So naturally, this is a, a very, very devastating moment for a lot of people. And it says that the Tories, which is the, the you know, the, the governing party in the government at the moment in the UK, they face a wipeout in the next election because of this mortgage time bomb. And I was saying that this seems very similar to back in 2008, when the recession, when, the, when, when Lehman Brothers collapsed in 2008 and this huge recession started, there was incredible anger towards bankers. The bankers in the, um, the bankers in Wall Street and all these places, they were considered to be the blame for the massive crash in 2008. Their greed was the cause of it. And actually in Ireland, uh, the developers were very much seen as the blame, the greedy developers, as they were called, for everything going wrong in 2008 or 2009. And what I have to kind of bring you back to is acceptance and ownership. People love to blame everyone else but themselves. And when you're looking at a situation like this, who's to blame? The government is to blame. Who's to blame? The bankers are to blame. Who's to blame? Um, you know, such and such a person is to blame. Whatever it is, um, most people, they go and enter into a period of denial when they refuse to accept any responsibility for the situation that they're in. And I went through the same emotions myself. Now, don't get me wrong. I spent quite a bit of time in denial. I thought that the banks were all to blame for my situation. I thought if they just you know, gave me the, you know, let get off my back, I'll be able to kind of dig myself out of this hole. And I, I spent a lot of time blaming them. And what in fact you're doing when you're blaming them or you're blaming anybody else is you are in victim mode. You are not in what I like to consider the warrior mindset. The warrior mindset is when you realize there's nobody coming to rescue you you are going to just fight your way out of the situation that you're in. If you're in a victim mode, you're not going to fight your way through anything. You're just going to start throwing the blame at everyone else as to why everything is really shitty right now and life is bad and life is crap and blah, blah, blah. You have to accept that no matter how unfair it may seem, you have got to accept the blame yourself. Own it take responsibility for the situation you're in and just say, you know what? I did this. Nobody else to blame. Nobody's going to fix it except me. And therefore, when you think about nobody is coming to rescue you, you say, you know what? The only person who's going to dig me out of this hole is me. And that is exactly what eventually helped me overcome the situation that I found myself in. Now, this reminds me of a thing that um, I go back to and it's called the five deadly D's in a crisis. And I might have covered this before, you know, maybe a year ago or something like that. But the five deadly D's in a crisis. The first D in the five deadly D's is denial. And that's what I've just been speaking about is that how people love to blame everyone else. And they automatically deny any ex acceptance of responsibility. 
or they deny that there's a problem in the first place. So let's say, for example, your mortgage is about to reset and you're in denial that it's really going to be a big problem or you're in denial that you're, you know, you're facing some difficult choices ahead. That denial is uncomfortable and it's because it's such an uncomfortable situation that you're, the easier option is just to deny that there's a problem. But the problem is denial causes delay and that is the next D. Delay is really damaging when it comes to a crisis. If you're not taking action, if you're not being decisive very quickly, then it's just going to fester. This problem is not going to go away. It's going to get worse and worse. And therefore, you've got to be careful not to be in that denial in the first place, but definitely not to delay taking action. The next D in the five deadly Ds is deliberation. And this is because you have delayed making any decisive action, making any action at all, you suddenly then, after a while, you start to realize that other people are behaving differently, that mm, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there is a problem. And so it's slowly dawning on you that your denial could be wrong, um, could be you know, placed in the wrong position, and therefore you start to deliberate, what should I do? Um, is there a problem? And this deliberation, again, it's causing more and more delay. You've got to take decisive action. And that is ultimately what D number four in the five deadly Ds is, decision. You finally accept there's a problem. You accept that the, you know, the delay can't be, you can't avoid this. You've deliberated on what's the action to take and you finally made a decision. And so finally you're acting, which is great. But because of the delay, the fifth D is damage. You have done the damage by delaying, not taking action when you could have, and therefore it has caused this problem. And so be very careful not to get caught up in the five deadly Ds. Now, the next thing on the list for resilience is take stock. And I've talked about this, uh, how you've got to evaluate your actual resources that are still available to you. Now, when I went through my banking issues back in 2008, there is this automatic assumption that all is lost because you have had, you know, the, the plug has been pulled by the banks, you don't have access to money, and you might have been paying yourself quite well, or you might have been enjoying, you know, certain kind of, you know, luxuries and benefits and lifestyle. And all of this stuff has to come to an end and often it's very jarring situation to go through and because it's so jarring you tend to think it's much worse than it actually is you've lost access to your money uh, the banks are no longer lending and all that kind of stuff and so you start to kind of get frozen by the lack of financial resources that you have but that is wrong to think that those are the only resources that are available to you and uh, one of the biggest problems in any kind of a crisis uh, or any kind of, you know, in development or business or entrepreneurship in any way is that the problem is rarely access to resources itself. Typically, what it, what is actually lacking is the resourcefulness. And so you will find that if you do a proper assessment of your available resources, that you have an awful lot more to hand than you think you do. So, yes, money is tight, but you still have got your knowledge. You still have your expertise. You may still have a good network of people that you can pick up the phone and call. You still have time on your side to go and 
turn things around. And this is one of the things that you just have to think about and sit down. And when I faced my situation, I can remember when I was in that denial period, I was thinking that it was all the bank's fault and they've taken my money away and what am I going to do? But actually, I started to think, okay, no one's coming to rescue me. How am I going to fix this situation? What do I still have? What can the banks not take from me? Well, they cannot take the experience that I have over the last number of years. They cannot take away the knowledge I have on how to put deals together, how to do property transactions, how to originate a deal, bring together a property with a tenant and create a deal out of thin air. That kind of thing is very valuable, but you just have to kind of look for the deals that'll allow you to do that. And it, you don't necessarily need money to do that. Just the knowledge and the expertise is highly valuable and can be, you know, worked on in a way that will actually create an opportunity that others may invest in. The next thing is your network. And you have not, like I have a phone filled with contacts. The bank don't take those contacts away from you. Yes, they've taken the money away, but they have not taken your phone away. So you have access to phone numbers, to knowledge, to people who are willing to either help you or to point you in the right direction or provide expertise towards you. Whatever it is, you still have your knowledge and you still have your network. That is valuable. Now, in my case, I took myself off to Dubai and I did various things in Dubai. And the next thing that I'm going to talk about is focus and control. Focus on what you can control. And that is the biggest thing, because what so many people do is they spend all of their time worrying about stuff that they have no control over. And therefore, you're, you're worrying about something that you can't influence. And then what's the point of worrying about it? So, in for example, what's the economy going to do? What's going to happen in Ukraine with, you know, the Russian war and stuff like that? What's going to happen here in Ireland with interest rates? What's going to happen in the UK with interest rates? What's going to, you know, what's this? What's that? All of this stuff is you starting to worry about stuff that's not in your control. Focus instead on what you have direct control over. And that could be your mindset and that could be your health. And in my case, I became maniacally focused on my health and my fitness. I started to do adventure racing. I got in back into Ironman training. And, uh, and as you guys know, I do a lot of burpees and calisthenics and things like that. I stopped reading the newspapers because if it's outside of my control, it is actually irrelevant. It is not going to help me fix my situation. And one of the questions that I ask me myself when I'm in that is, is this serving me or how well is this serving me? And therefore, if you're reading an article and you're finding yourself kind of curious about what's happening in the US politics or something like that, ask yourself, how is this serving me? Is this actually going to help me turn around the situation that I'm in? Most of the time it isn't. Whereas if you go out and go for a run, your health is going to improve. With improved health comes improved energy, improved vitality. That increases your creativity. So your ability to problem solve is improved. Apart from the fact that the endorphins that you get from it are going to make you even more, uh, you know, just more creative and more capable and able to deal with the problems that you're dealing with. And the final bit of advice around resilience is to consider everything that you're going through a test. 
And uh, I can remember when I was going through the, the really, the difficult, the most difficult moment. And I was down in Spain and I was trying to hold this deal together that cost 40 million, 42 million. And I can remember, you know, in denial that this was all going to go completely tits up. But it, I knew there was a big problem on my hands. And I can remember the, the guy that I was dealing with, the, the, the Spanish person. He used to say to me, Gavin, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And at the time, I can remember thinking, well, that's real helpful. Thanks very much. But actually, that is exactly it. Look at me now talking about this stuff now. Like if it doesn't, if it, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm a stronger person today because of what I went through in 2008. I'm a stronger person. I'm a more wise, uh, clued in, insightful all of that stuff happened because I went through 2008. Now, of course, it was very difficult and it was very unpleasant at the time. But we humans, and I'm talking to everyone listening here, we all have evolved from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of survival. Um, we, we, you know, we grew up in the plains of Africa uh, we survived as, you know, humans living in caves, fighting off bears, fighting off wolves, living on, you know, berries and stuff like that, surviving winters, freezing cold winters without having, you know, heating systems and all that. We have survived thousands of years. We are the ancestors uh, or the uh, descendants, I should say. We are the descendants of real survivors that have survived the most difficult conditions. And here we are, years, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years later, here we are still alive as descendants of that DNA. And so we have the DNA of survivors in our blood, and therefore we can take an awful lot more than we believe we can take. And so one of the things that I do is I just tell myself, this is a test. If I'm going through really, really difficult time, I say, this is all a test, a test to see, am I worthy? Am I worthy of this test? Am I going to beat this test? And the answer is yes. You'll get through it as bad as it feels at the moment. You will get through this. And in fact, you'll be stronger on the other side of this. And <laughs> using this as an example, you'll have a great story that you can tell um, on the other side. And look at me talking about it now. I've got podcast and you guys are listening and therefore this is it. So quick recap on resilience before I finish the show. Put things into perspective. Remember to ask the question, has anyone died here? Second of all, take full responsibility. Take ownership, extreme ownership. You are to blame for your situation. Don't blame other people. It might seem unfair, but take responsibility for the situation you're in and believe that only I can fix this and therefore you will turn around and it'll give you that bit of a bump or a kick in the ass to go and start working to solve this problem. Take stock of the available resources that you have open to you and so use my MENT exercise as I call it. Uh, your money might be gone um, but money is a resource. Energy is a resource. Expertise is a resource. Networking, your contacts list, that is a resource. Knowledge is a resource. Time is a resource. What of those do you have available to you? 
you may have an awful lot more available to you than you think. Focus on what you can directly control, not what other people control, not what you're reading in the newspapers. Focus on what you can control. And in my humble opinion, I think what you should work on is your mindset and your health, because those two things have direct benefits. And ultimately, consider this a test of are you worthy? Guys, I hope you found this useful, this uh, episode useful. I, I apologize if you have uh, alternative views about my friend, but um, I do. I'm a loyal person and I stick by my friends and therefore I'm going to defend him um, to the best of my ability. And there, that's what I have to say to you this week. Guys, I hope you found this useful and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter all of these links are in the show notes below that's all for now i will see you guys in the next episode